there's this way when we actually spend time with, uh, speak to, visit with friends from other communities, actually live in community with people that are different than us, that we start to be able to see things from their perspective. And, you know, that can be helped by see people now trying to take in different media, trying to pay attention to different voices. And that's helpful, but it's actually those intimate relationships and you start to hear the experiences and witness how we're treated differently, how it might feel to be different, so that that intimacy really reveals a lot for us. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more calm, comfort, and clarity through the simple act of slowing down. My guest today is Sebene Selassie, a meditation teacher, a writer, and friend who has studied Buddhism for over 30 years. Her new book, You Belong, due out on August 25th, explores spirituality and humanity through the lens of belonging, making the case that accepting our own interconnectedness is the surest route to accepting ourselves. In this rich and wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the delusion of separation, which lies at the core of all feelings of not belonging. The Pali concept of papancha, or the mental chatter that keeps us from connecting to ourselves. How the thoughts of the dominant culture seep into our brains and dominate our thoughts. And how embodied awareness can help us manage physical and social pain better. This conversation originally unfolded live on Zoom, and has been lightly edited for presentation in this podcast episode. All right, without further ado, let's dive in. Your new book, You Belong, is about so many things. It's about the delusion of separation, which creates huge divides and biases and violence in our society. It's about shifting from an awareness centered completely in the rational mind into a richer, wiser, embodied awareness. It's about building a meditation practice. And then at the root of all of that, it's about belonging. So I'm wondering if we could start by talking about the genesis of your new book and how it manages to encompass all of these wide-ranging ideas. You know, the genesis is really my life. I think I've spent um, most of my life feeling like I didn't belong. Um, being an immigrant, being a black kid growing up in white neighborhoods and going to white schools, being someone who identifies with many um, outsider, marginalized communities in a dominant culture, um, you know, being a Buddhist and being the only black person in the room, the only person of color in my Dharma communities, as like my friend La likes to say, the only person of color besides the Buddha. <laughs> uh, you know, so I was kind of always feeling like I didn't belong. And there are so many ways that society tells us we don't belong. You know, we're not rich enough or thin enough or pretty enough or successful enough or woke enough, whatever it is that belonging was such a theme of my spiritual search and my um, my search for self-growth and self-development, too. When I was asking you, because I mean, all of these topics work the way the the sort of subtlety and the the elegance with which they come together is something that I is really hard to sort of distill down into a little soundbite. There's something else I wanted to ask you about the book coming together, which was the coronavirus had already kind of started to take hold, I think, as you were wrapping up the manuscript for the book. But then the uprisings began in late May in response to the killing of George Floyd. And I know you had the opportunity to do some rewrites to address these rapidly unfolding events, which very much relate to some of the topics that you explore in the book. And I'm curious, number one, what the process of doing those rewrites felt like for you just as a creative person on this urgent deadline and also as a, a Black woman experiencing these events unfolding. And two, what you changed, as I've only read the galley copy of the book before you did a little bit of this kind of final retooling. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I didn't really change very much. So I, they weren't really rewrites as they were additions. So 
um, you know, my editor and the few folks who had read it before the pandemic hit were saying to me, oh, my God, isn't it amazing that your book addresses all of these issues? So it was more finding ways to just articulate how these particular experiences fit with the themes of the book, because the kind of central idea of the book is that we aren't separate, but we're also not the same. And that's a core thesis of Buddhism and a central paradox of all spiritual traditions and ancient wisdom that we are all connected. We're, we aren't separate. We're interconnected, but we live these relative realities of, of difference, of separation, of oppression. So it was just finding the right metaphors and the right ways to fit these particular instances into that, into that thesis. It definitely seems like you had such an intuitive uh, perception of, you know, almost what the world was, was going to need at exactly this moment. And you're really kind of leading right into something that I wanted to talk about, which is this core concept of the book about the delusion of separation that so many of us live in and how if we're really able to pierce that veil of separation, we can see that we all belong and that none of us are separate. And you write in the book, quote, although we are not one, we are not separate. And although we are not separate, we are not the same, end quote. So this is a fairly subtle notion to parse. Can you talk a little bit more about those sentences and the delusion of separation? I feel like that's going to kind of help anchor the rest of this conversation. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, ancient wisdom, all um, indigenous wisdom traditions, spiritual teachings point to this delusion. You know, most um, spiritual teachings that have any merit anyways will um, lead us to an understanding of our interconnection. And uh, I use the, the teaching from the Bantu uh, tradition of Ubuntu, which people may have heard of, that, you know, I am because you are. And that refers not just to humans, but to all of life, that there is no separation. And I also talk about how science tells us this, that it's actually 100 years old now that modern science is understanding that there is no separation and that there's probably no tiniest, smallest particle, but actually just a giant field of energy that we all emerged out of one tiny, infinitesimally small pinpoint, and, and we differentiated into all of this diversity. So that, that delusion is really because we don't have a perceptual understanding like our ordinary senses can't tell us about that interconnection, but we know on a fundamental level it's true. And then the challenge is reckoning with that, with the fact that we have tons of feeling of separation and we have difference, diversity, oppression, injustice, and all of the things that grow out of that delusion. Well, so you use this metaphor that I found very useful for my thinking to describe how some of this separation functions. You describe society as being organized in these sort of concentric circles with those who are part of the dominant culture at the center and with those who are cast as marginalized in kind of the outer rings. Could you go into a little bit more detail about how that metaphor functions and, and talk about how it plays into the different perspectives that we adopt? Yeah. So, you know, just to acknowledge that it's a metaphor, so it's inherently imperfect and all of the language that we use to try and describe this complexity and the paradox is, is never going to be enough. So um, we're much more than concentric circles of our various identities, but we talk about marginalization. And when we say people are marginalized, we're saying they're kind of outside of a dominant center. But if we think of the people at the center, kind of the dominant group, being um, only aware of the center, so let's say we're in looking inwards from our concentric circle, then they really can't have a large perspective because they're only in the center. Whereas those in the margins actually see so much. And the farther out in the margins you are, the more you actually see. And on top of that, people from the margins move in and out. So we're not only seeing more from the margins, we're actually experiencing all along the way. And, you know, you can even just see this for those of you who are in New York City or in cities where the center of a city is kind of the most dominant, wealthy part. People in the outer boroughs and kind of farther out have to come in. 
Um, so there's a lot more knowledge about the center than there is about the margins. When could you go into that in a little more depth in terms of this idea of standpoint theory? Could you describe what that is for listeners? Yeah. So standpoint theory is a sociological theory that um, states that exactly, actually, that there's sort of an assumption that um, a dominant assumption that those in the center have objectivity because their identities are somehow not getting in the way. But standpoint theory argues that the margins actually have the most perspective, um, have the most understanding and have actually greater objectivity than those at the center. So in this scenario, if I'm a white person who's only spending time with other white people, let's say, for instance, I'm only getting this very narrow, specific, dominant culture view of the world. You describe in the book how intimate relationships with people from different backgrounds and experiences allow us to use the phrase, walk each other's circumferences, which I thought was really beautiful. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, I used this um, experience uh, with my two best friends from college, Peter, who's a white Anglo-Canadian gay man, and my friend Naomi, who's uh, Canadian-Japanese. And uh, we were walking through Montreal back in the late 80s when there were a lot of skinheads and a lot of white supremacist skinheads um, in the city. There were incidences of gay people, people of color, immigrants being beat up. And so we were walking down the street and Peter was wearing a hat with a, a little um, two male symbols intertwined, you know, a symbol of, of, of gay power. And uh, he took off his hat as we passed this group of skinheads. And then it just sort of dawned on him for the first time, probably. And he turned to us and he said, oh, my God, you guys can never take off your hats. And so there's this way when we actually spend time with, uh, speak to, visit with friends from other communities, actually live in community with people that are different than us, that we start to be able to see things from their perspective. And, you know, that's that can be helped by see people now, you know, trying to take in different media, trying to pay attention to different voices. And that's helpful, but it's actually those intimate relationships and you start to hear um, the experiences and witness how we're treated differently, how um, it might feel to to be different. I've traveled many times with Peter and his partner, Paul, and, you know, have felt the difference of me being with my straight male partner and two gay men being together and, and what that's like in terms of how we can be together in public. So that, that intimacy really reveals a lot for us. Well, another thing that feeds into this delusion of separation is mental proliferation, where our internal mental chatter goes on overdrive about everything that keeps us from feeling a sense of belonging. And you describe the Pali concept of papancha when you talk about this. Um, you write, quote, we have collective post-colonial papancha, end quote. Could you say a little bit more about what papancha is and explain this, this idea of collective post-colonial papancha? Yeah, so papancha is one of my favorite words from Pali, Pali being the the language that the teachings of the Buddha were first written in. Um, and it's it's translated as mental per- proliferation. Um, and to me, it sounds like what it is. It's like papancha, like it's like all of the thoughts constantly popping in my head. And we, you know, often um, in a lot of spiritual practice and meditation, we acknowledge kind of the personal papancha, like we acknowledge all of the noise um, and even the psychological chatter that comes from our family situations, from um, you know our our personal challenges, habits, patterns. But we're also absorbing all the papancha of our culture and our society. So you know we're policing our bodies based on their size. We're people are straighten, straightening their hair so they can get a corporate job. There's papancha about class and you know how much money we have or don't have and um, there's there's so much papancha you know mental um, chatter Sharon Salzberg I heard her the other day call it um, imperialism of the mind you know there's just sort of this this colonization of our mind of all of this information that we're absorbing from all of around us not just our personal lives but also our social lives our cultural lives our political lives 
Right. When you quote um, Krishnamurti, I think by way of Jane Fonda in the book of, you know, saying you think you're thinking your own thoughts, you're not, you're thinking the culture's thoughts, which means that these thoughts and a lot of this mental proliferation is, you know, kind of as you're saying, is not our fault. But then at the same time, we're responsible for those thoughts. Could you unpack that a little bit, like how we're all steeped in these oppressive forces that are out of our control, but how we also need to take responsibility for unraveling the implicit biases that we've absorbed from that culture? Yeah, I think this is such an important step to um, bravely step into the space of untangling all of this papancha, all of this um, confusion, all of this delusion, the separation, because one thing I talk about is how inherently, if we feel separate, we're going to go into domination patterns, right? Because that is the culture we're steeped in. We're steeped in a culture of comparison, of competition, of hierarchy. So that's what we're absorbing too. And I don't like to see domination patterns in myself, but I see them all the time. Of course, you know, I, I used to tell Peter, actually, we lived together for many years as roommates. And I used to tell him he was allowed to be right on Tuesdays. Um, because I'm a big know-it-all and I like love to argue with people and um, get into like intellectual debates for long periods of time until I'm definite that I've won. Um, That's not like my proudest moments, I would say, (laughs) when I can get that way. And and, um, I'm not competitive in many other ways, but I I do like to argue, but I don't like to fight. So, you know, I'm not really into battles and I've been with people who are really dominating um, family members who yell or who scream um, and that, you know, that will make me retreat. So we're all kind of playing in these patterns and we don't have to take them personally. I love that quote from Krishnamurti because it, it's exactly like you said, you know, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility. There, there are these patterns that we've learned from our families, from the culture, and we can release them. But in order to release them, we first have to see them. We have to admit to them. We have to acknowledge them. And, you know, that's where the power of meditation and really being able to see clearly what's going on is is so helpful. When I was going to ask how, how can we begin to release them or how have you experienced that for yourself, which you know, it seems like not surprisingly has is, is been largely through the process of meditation. Yeah. Meditation and contemplative practices in general, I think, um, have a bit of paradoxical quality about them themselves, that there's this almost magic transformation that happens when we allow something to have some attention and space, it actually can resolve itself. Um, it, it's actually our denial of things, you know, what you resist persists or the, the mindfulness saying that, you know, pain times resistance equals suffering. So we all have these pains. We all have these challenges. We have these domination patterns, but it's not by pushing them away or struggling with them or grasping at something that's better that they actually resolve. It's by giving them attention, seeing them clearly, and then allowing them, meeting them with some kindness. And clarity and kindness are really the two wings of this practice, sometimes referred to as wisdom and compassion, but really that ability to, to witness and then to allow. And, and that, that's what brings the freedom. Well, and since we're talking about this mental chatter Could you talk about the term mindfulness versus the term embodied awareness and why you prefer the the latter term, which you talk about at length in the book? Yeah. You know, mindfulness has just gotten so much play in the past years and it's become such a powerful um, word and I'm not sure everybody exactly knows what it means. So it's a translation of a Pali word called sati and sati has... um, kind of a wider connotation than just mind. So, of course, Western European translators put the word mind right in it because that's where a lot of Western thought and philosophy is centered, is in the mind. And But that really makes us think that it's like an intellectual, only conceptual process, that we're like thinking our way out of our experience. 
So embodied awareness to me really um, helps recenter that into a whole body experience that actually sati is inviting us to experience life through all of our senses. And it's that kind of awareness that brings true freedom, that brings that release. So, um, yeah, it's not even only awareness versus mindfulness, but it's an embodied awareness so that we, you know, are able to see, hear, touch, feel, smell, and, and from there start to understand what's going on with us. And so I've been having a lot of conversations with people lately about this idea of embodied awareness and just about the idea of coming back into the body. And I'm curious to ask you how can embodied awareness help us manage pain better? Because that's a question that sort of immediately comes up. I think when we go back into the body, you know, we start to really feel things, whether that's emotional pain or it's literal physical pain. And I think for a lot of people, there's a question of how, like, is, how, how can there be a positive in sitting with this? Yeah. You know, just first to acknowledge that some people experience really severe pain and chronic pain, and there's different ways to work with that. And that's really on an individual basis. So I'm going to speak more generally about the, um, you know, more kind of mundane pain, let's call it. And that doesn't mean that it's not intense, but we're not talking about really severe chronic or injurious pain. Um, most of our pain we perpetuate because we are in contention with it. So that pain times resistance equals suffering thing. Um, we're in our suffering because we're actually holding on to our pain in some way. Um, so if we look at, let's say, emotional pain, um, most emotions will rise and pass away in our experience and through our bodies in just a matter of seconds or maybe minutes. And it's actually the stories that we attach to the pain, to the emotion that continue that emotional pain. So it's because we're kind of re-triggering it over and over again by having the same thought patterns about an experience um, that that emotion of fear or sadness or um, or anxiety perpetuates. So a lot of what meditation practices is just cultivating the capacity to stay with an experience long enough so that you can see things rise and pass away and rise and pass away. And the reason why it takes years and lots of practice and people go on long retreat is because our patterns are so deeply woven um, or grooved, as the neuroscientists say, the neurons that fire together, wire together. It takes time to kind of unwire those patterns so that we can see that new patterns are are able to be formed and and ready and available. And the, the emotional pain and, and physical pain are actually processed in the same part of the brain. So there's also some correlation, although it's a little different with physical pain as well, that, and I experienced a lot of physical pain through numerous cancer treatments. And I could witness how um, the pain would often have, you know, a half-life. It would sort of rise and fall. And it was actually my anticipation of more pain, my fear of pain that was perpetuating a particular experience of that pain. But if I could just be with the actual sensation of pain, it was always changing. It wasn't a constant experience of one type of pain. It was always moving, shifting, changing. We have to pause for a moment to thank our sponsors, but stay with me. After the break, Sebene and I talk about why meditating while lying down can be a useful corrective to our obsession with productivity and doing, doing, doing. This episode is brought to you by Hey. I have such a strong dislike of email that I wrote a whole book about it called Unsubscribe. So imagine how tickled I was to learn that some folks that I really respect decided to reinvent email. That's right. Jason Fried, who was interview number one on the very first Hurry Slowly podcast, and the team at Basecamp have completely transformed email with their new product, Hey. Jason and I share passion for creating calm, focused work environments. And Hey, amazingly, brings that ethos to email. Simply put, Hey gives control over your inbox back to you with a host of features you didn't know you needed, but will become instantly addicted to. The first time you get an email from any new sender, you get to decide if you want to hear from that person. 
Don't want to? You'll never hear from them again. It also lets you prioritize where email from that person will go. The main inbox for important stuff, the feed for newsletters and other casual whenever reads, and paper trail for receipts and other transactions. But my favorite feature is the reply later function, which allows you to stack messages you don't want to deal with now at the bottom of your screen and then bang through them all from a single screen later with the powerful focus and reply function. They also make it easy to change unhelpful email subject lines into something meaningful so you don't have to navigate threads that have evolved light years away from the original subject. They also block spyware, make attachments easy to find, and let you send large files. Finally, a genuinely thoughtful approach to email. Visit hey.com now to start a free 14-day trial and experience email's new heyday. Once again, that's hey.com for a free 14-day trial. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. I know a lot of folks who've been taking this time of retreat to get their house in order. Restaining furniture that needed an update, reorganizing that closet that got out of control, planting a garden in the yard to be a little more self-sufficient. I, for one, am planning to get my digital house in order, revisiting my online identities and getting everything aligned, updated, and ready for a fresh start in this brave new online all-the-time world. And all of those identities are housed at Hover.com. Hover is my go-to source whenever I need a domain name for a new creative project. I currently have seven domains and counting with them. If you're looking for a new digital home base to house your latest project or your new business, I can't recommend them enough. They have a dizzying array of extensions to choose from, including all the classics, like your .coms and your .orgs, plus a bunch of new school favorites, like .live for your new virtual event series, or .design for that creative portfolio you're finally going to get online. I also really enjoy their laid-back approach. Unlike some other domain name providers, Hover doesn't constantly try to upsell you. Whois privacy is included with every domain, and features like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. If you have a bunch of websites like me, the more domains you register with Hover, the less you pay in renewals. If you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. Coming back to this idea of these stories that we make around the pain, whether that be emotional pain or as you were just talking about physical pain and how deeply wired those are. I mean, what has been your experience of unraveling those stories? Like talking about like years and years of time to kind of really unravel them to just to put this on like a time continuum for people? Yeah. You know, it's not that there's a formula. I've had some things kind of just disappear really easily that I thought would be much stickier and some things that seem pretty benign that stick around for a long time. So that patience of um, understanding that it's a process, I think, is really important, first of all. And then also, um, you know, what we were talking about before, this reminding ourselves that it's, it's not our fault, There's actually a book about epigenetics called um, It Didn't Start With You. And for like a year, I kept recommending that book to people and I would call it It's Not Your Fault. I was was misnaming, mislabeling the book because that was really the message. You know, we we inherit some of our challenges, our pains, physical and, and emotional. And we, in a sense, inherit it from our families and our culture around us and society. And so to have that patience to see that this is wound through history and time and through processes that um, were not of our making. It's not like we decided to wake up one day when we were 13 and be depressed. You know, this was in the making because of all of the causes and conditions and, and to sort of, you know, forgive ourselves in a way that this is the way things are and and in this moment to keep aspiring to release from that. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is this idea of the inner critic. And then you talk about how in um, certain traditions, 
the idea of the inner critic is actually regarded as ancestral wisdom. And so in order to um, release or maybe just befriend that voice, you have to first recognize the wisdom that it's bringing you. Could you talk a little bit more about that tradition and just that concept, which I think is really interesting? Yeah. So um, I learned that idea in a, in a training I was in uh, around um, indigenous focusing. So using focusing, which is a technique created by Eugene Genlin um, and, a, and connecting it with indigenous wisdom. And, and this is also true and understood around just inner critics in general um, in psychology that, you know, we develop these habits and these tendencies as kids to protect ourselves. So we might become withdrawn or um, we might become uh, reserved or aggressive even as a protection mechanism. That was very wise when we were kids. And as adults, um, we haven't quite learned to release them yet, you know, because of our wounding or our uh, attachment to these because they served us so long and we haven't learned how to undo them. So in this indigenous um, uh tradition that I was training in, there's also an acknowledgement that some of this epigenetic material is also that, right? So whole communities learned how to be protective by um, sheltering themselves, by being suspicious of strangers, by, um, you know, uh, being outspoken and demanding um, so that they could survive and that these are not, uh, tendencies that maybe serve us all the time now, but we can acknowledge the wisdom in them and, and then begin to release them when, when they do no longer serve. I want to go back a little bit to what we were just talking about and, and pain in the body. Lately, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the connection between what's happening in our energy body or the chakra system and the pain we experience and then how both of those things are connected to our, our mental challenges and habits and avoidance mechanisms, or even maybe coping strategies, as you describe. You write in the book that the patterns of pain and the body inevitably overlap with emotional patterns. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of, um, because I'm having a bit of a hot flash right now, <laughs> so I talk about in the book how I, uh, as part of my cancer treatment, I had my ovaries removed. So I was thrown into full blown menopause early. And so I get these hot flashes and I realized at a certain point that a lot of the irritation I was feeling in general, um, which I thought was just a general irritability that comes with menopause. And I remember my mom being super irritable when she was going through menopause it was actually a response to irritation in the body. So I was sitting at the kitchen table one day and I started to get really annoyed with Frederick, my partner. He wasn't even there, but I was like, oh, I was like grumbling in my mind about something. And then a hot flash came on and I, and because I'm attuned to my body, I, I kind of brought embodied awareness to it and I could feel the connection. I could feel the connection between the physical experience and the actual um, irritation, emotional experience. And I started to track that. So anytime I got irritated about anything, I just stopped, even like the smallest irritation and started to check into my body. And like 90% of the time, it was a hot flash on its way. A little while after that, I read this book, How Emotions Are Made, um, who uh, is written by, I'm forgetting her name now, she's an amazing neuroscientist. And she talks about um, the neuroscience behind this, that actually our emotions um, are culturally conditioned in a sense. Um, you know, emotions don't have cultural correspondences between different cultures, like different emotions exist in different cultures that actually our emotions are response to physical experience. That if we have pleasant experiences, <clears throat> unpleasant experiences, uh, we will have different emotions attached to them. And that's exactly what I was feeling, that in a way, our physical experience is determining our emotional experience. And this is very correlated to, to pain experiences, right? So um, a lot of our emotional pain is actually linked to physical pain and becomes patterned. 
When you're making me think of, you know, I was just reading about and listening to a podcast about, you know, the, the vagal nerve and polyvagal theory and how, you know, the, the vagal nerve, right, which runs from the kind of the base of the cranium all the way down through the body into the abdomen. And that's a two-way channel. And we think like the mind is controlling everything, right? But 80% of the data is coming from the gut up to the brain right? and only 20% from the brain into the gut, which seems kind of in line with what you're talking about. And why meditation has such a huge effect on us, both physically, emotionally, and mentally, that actually relaxing the system and being able to be with whatever is happening, even subtle changes of pain or pleasure, we are able to bring more ease to anything. Right. That idea that we're just uh, relaxing the autonomic nervous system, which allows us to kind of feel safer and get into a different modality, which then allows us to potentially have different emotions about whatever kind of thoughts are going through our head. Yeah. And to have more clarity, um, you know, again, bringing clarity and kindness to our experience so that when we're in front of something, you know, we're able to really respond from a clear place. And so even the changes we want to make in ourselves, in the world, is coming from a place of clarity, not driven by these biological, emotional, mental patterns that we're wound into. Yeah. Well, and speaking of, of patterns, um, one of the things you write about in the book, you say, quote, when we do not live deeply into our embodied awareness, our lives become about the struggle to keep up. We become trapped in cycles of productivity and performativity. How does this pathology of productivity, as you call it, which I really like, separate us from our bodies and from embodied awareness? Pathology of productivity is my friend Shayla Davison's um, phrase, which I love too. And I, I see this in myself all the time, that when I'm caught in this doing pattern, it's so hard to be clear about actually what's happening in an embodied way, to be clear that I'm not being driven by you know, these automatic responses to something that's going on with me physically or an emotional pattern that I'm caught in. Um, and it's so hard. It's so hard to come out of that because of the society we live in, especially right now where... Um, you know, we're all attached to these things, which are amazing because they bring us all together and so thankful for the technology, but it's inherently a technology of doing, right? Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to uh, unplug from that and actually uh, be in that, this technology of being. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so how does that play out for you in your meditation practice and just kind of thinking about this un undoing this pathology of productivity? Well, you know, I would say right now, um, I'm really trying to feel a lot of the, uh, the, the rebalancing that I'm, um, aspiring to. So I do a lot of lying down practice, um, which I don't know if I talk about so much in the book, but uh, I find that because I'm doing all the time, sitting up, sitting at a desk, uh, that lying down is a corrective practice, that it actually allows my body to, to rest enough that I can put my active energy in really paying attention to what's going on in my body. Because um, it's so hard to be deeply in touch with our bodies because you know, besides doing, these technologies are also so much about our heads. You know, it's a technology of seeing and hearing these sens sensory experiences that are all kind of north of our necks. Um, so that practice of really lying down, feeling my body and really starting to understand where is the tension and where is the weakness, you know, and what, uh, what in my body... Um, is holding me back from a full sense of freedom, which is uh, both in alert and relaxed. It's both engaged and receptive. Well, then how do you how do you do that, and then not take it into this sort of cousin of, let's say, the pathology of productivity, which would be perfectionism? And I was just talking about this with someone the other day, right? Thinking about meditation practice and and unlinking that from perfectionism, this notion that you have to be somehow doing it 
right. Even though as we receive teachings about meditation, there's sort of constant guidance about that there is, in a sense, a certain way to do it. So how do you kind of unlink those things? Yeah, you know, one of the best um, teachings I heard, I heard it first from Joseph Goldstein, but it's a, it, a lot of people say this, is that it's not what's happening that matters, it's our relationship to it. And that is such a key in meditation because so many people think of meditation as um, a trying to get somewhere else, as, as if there is another place to be. Uh, and, you know, here are paradoxes. There is an understanding of what freedom feels like in the body and, and what balance feels like in the body. And we've all felt that at some point or another, even if it's only momentary. And so there's a willingness to open up to that without a grasping for that. And it's actually the relationship of ease to whatever is happening that most mimics that. So that that freedom looks like how we actually approach the practice, right? So we're continually kind of retuning so that we're not trying to make something happen. We're just allowing ourselves to have an easeful relationship to whatever's happening. And I know that sounds like some word magic, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. <laughs> well, that's one of my favorite things about Buddhism is all the, the sort of the paradoxes that it's this and that at the same time. And that was making me think again of, you know, this idea of working with pain. And you talk in the book about, you know, being able to bring kindness to pain. And you hear that, that said, and it's like, what does that even mean? But that is an extension sort of of what you're describing. Yeah, we're always tuning back into that ease. And again, you know, seeing clearly what's happening and meeting it with kindness, clarity and kindness. And, and it requires, this is the other thing I talk about a lot, is curiosity. Like we really have to be curious about what's really there. And, and sometimes what we find is not something we like, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, very often, it seems like... <laughs> I wanted to shift gears to touch on another topic that you cover toward the end of the book. You open a discussion about cultural appropriation, and you talk about four ways that we can address other cultures through appropriation, through dismissal, through exchange, or through appreciation. And something that I'm noticing coming up lately, and I'm, I'm not really sure where you'd file this or how you'd kind of address that within that conversation, is talking to people who are very conscious and judgmental of cultural appropriation with practices that are more, let's say, recently appropriated by the dominant culture like ayahuasca or sweat lodge ceremonies, and not particularly conscious or concerned about practices that are less recently appropriated like Reiki or yoga, for instance. And I'm curious if you could share a framework for thinking about this and, and kind of cultural appropriation in general in a more considered way, maybe. Oh, man. You know, this is, this is, this is really complex territory. Um, and, you know, I can speak about it generally in frameworks. And I find that the most useful conversations about cultural appropriation are... Um, within communities that are actually addressing the same issue at once. And so I do a lot of that in particular Buddhist communities, in my community, which is mostly insight, but also I've done work with the Zen communities who are trying to address this. And um, I found that those are the most interesting conversations because then people can actually acknowledge what's going on for them. You know, I've heard um, Korean Zen Korean people, Korean American people practicing in a Japanese Zen context talk about Japanese colonialism or imperialism and, you know, their difficulty in reckoning, practicing in a tradition and what does that mean and, um, and doing that in the U.S. with white teachers. Like, there's so much complexity. And so one of my challenges with kind of talking about it generally, it becomes... Um, black and white or white and indigenous, let's say. Um, and it, it, it doesn't acknowledge the long history of cultural exchange and cultural borrowing. So if we take Buddhism, for example, it has changed everywhere it went. So, you know, the Bado is born in what's modern day Nepal, the Indian subcontinent traveled, the, the teachings traveled through South, the Southeast Asia, Tibet, 
uh, China, Korea, Japan, changing everywhere it went, coming in contact with Bon tradition, with um, Confucianism and Taoism, with Shintoism, and it was always transforming. And that's what it's doing here now, too. And there's a huge conversation about cultural appropriation and Buddhism and the erasure of Asian American Buddhists and cult and heritage Buddhists. And that's a really important conversation to have. So to kind of speak generally that nothing can be borrowed or exchanged that is not ours. Um, I, I don't feel like that's a, a useful conversation except in context where people can really tease out what exactly is going on. You know, how are different people experiencing it? And are we in community with each other to actually explore this in an honest way? I'm finding that some of the conversations that are happening are, um, they're not even conversations. They're sort of declarations and statements and to me, that is not um, in line with sort of the restorative processes that I find are most healing to the harm and wounds that have happened um, because the, the wounds happened and harm happened out of relationship. And so to kind of make statements without being in relationship is, is just using the master's tools, you know? That makes a lot of sense. But so let's say if someone does have uh, questions or is, is reckoning with this with regard to something that they themselves are doing, whatever that may be, what would your recommendation be like to kind of ask whoever they are in community with and open a dialogue in, in that way? Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't want to make um, recommendations actually because um, – it's not that people shouldn't be held accountable for harm done. And it's not even that statements can't be made, you know, and even public statements, especially to about or to public individuals who have profited off of something that they don't really even understand. But um, any real understanding of these issues in a community can only happen in community. So, and, and, Sometimes I've walked away from certain communities because of, of harm around culture, identity, race, all sorts of things. Um, but I've also stuck with my main community because, um, because I'm invested in, in being in relation and having a process where we can all get free together. You know, and this is something I talk about also in the book is that the good news is we're not separate. The bad news, too, is we're not separate because <laughs> that means that we're stuck with each other and we're not going to get free until everybody gets free. So we have a lot of work to do. Well, and speaking of being stuck with each other, um, so much of this delusion of separation, which you know underpins kind of the whole book and, and what we've been talking about here today, is rooted in in self-love or in our inability to love ourselves, the one person we're supremely stuck with. Um, and you quote the Japanese Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi, who says, quote, all of you are perfect just as you are, and you could use a little improvement, end quote. On the face of it, it sounds like the statement could play into that pathology of productivity that we were talking about earlier, but it actually means something quite different. Could you talk a little bit more about that particular statement, which is, you know, such a beautiful paradox. I always heard it as this kind of sly insult. Um, but as I kind of deepened into my understanding, it's this encompassing understanding that we are who we are because of causes and conditions. And if we are in contention with that, we're in contention with reality. We're in contention with our ancestors. We're in contention with um, karma, you know, the causes and conditions that brought us to this moment. And so the needing a little improvement is just a, an acknowledgement of what's true. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to make it a problem. So we, we change our relationship to it and we recognize our aspirations rooted in wisdom and compassion. And, and we, we kind of orient our practice and really our lives to that. Well, and that's the real key, right? This idea of seeing the idea of needing a little improvement, not as a problem, which we've been so deeply culturally conditioned to do, right? To consume and improve and et cetera, et cetera, with all of this kind of self-help. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of horrified that I, my book is in the self-help category just because it 
buys into that. Um, and I acknowledge that, you know, myself needs a lot of help. And so can we have both? Do we, we don't have to make ourselves a problem in, in order to aspire towards transformation. You know, it, it doesn't have to be, um, a, a little project of self-improvement that plays into all the pathologies of our culture. I've been working hard these past few years on the project of, as Sebene says, not making myself a problem in order to aspire toward transformation. And arriving at that level of self-acceptance and self-love is a key part of belonging. But only insofar as that self-acceptance allows us to reach out to others with more kindness, with more compassion, and with more love. We cannot only focus on the bright side of belonging. We have to embrace the dark side as well. Feeling the belonging we have and the relationship we have to all of the injustices in this world. As Sebene wrote in her newsletter a few days after our interview, quote, Belonging is not about bypassing crises, so we feel better within our individual bubbles. Things are the way they are because of various causes and conditions. Injustice exists because it has existed in the past. If things had been different, things would have turned out differently. But hundreds, maybe thousands of years of separative thinking have led to the decimation of nature, the oppression of countless peoples, the destruction of many cultures, and the theft of vital resources. It unfortunately makes perfect sense we have a planetary crisis that impacts people unequally. We should not be surprised, even if we are heartbroken. But many of us are surprised because we haven't been paying attention. We've been trapped in our individual crises of not belonging, not recognizing the answer is belonging to it all. Our challenge is to navigate it all together. End quote. As always, much thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for audio assistance and composing our lovely theme song. If this episode sparked some new insights, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's a link right down there in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and remember to hurry slowly. Oh,